I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to Cross-Examining History, where we explore America's fascinating past and its engaging present with our country's leading authors and thought leaders. Earlier this week, I cross-examined Trish Hall, former editor of the New York Times op-ed section and author of the book Writing to Persuade that just came out in June 2019. We did the program in front of a live audience of lawyers at the Dallas Bar Association because lawyers in particular always need help in knowing how to persuade better. Enjoy. My name is Talmadge Boston. On behalf of about seven or eight sections of the Dallas Bar Association, I want to thank you for being here today. Uh, I know many of you, uh, my passion in life these days is uh, helping authors promote their books for the betterment of all. And when I saw Trish's book at the bookstore a few months ago, and then saw who had endorsed it on the back and then read it. I said, no, this is, this is uh, something everybody in the business world, but particularly lawyers, need to uh, familiarize ourselves with in terms of how to write more persuasively. Uh, we certainly have several sections here. Some are almost entirely in the litigation business. Some are almost entirely in the transactional business. Uh, but regardless of what area of practice you're in, as a lawyer, you are in the business of persuading people or trying to persuade people, whether it's a judge, uh, a client, uh, an administrative panel, uh, whoever it might be. So our special guest today is Trish Hall. Trish spent 20 years at the New York Times. At one time, she was the food editor. At one time, uh, she's the creator of the Weekend in Review. For five years, she was the uh, lead op-ed editor um, she's still in the business as a private consultant of, of being hired by professional writers to edit their piece, pieces to make them as good as they can be. And she's written this wonderful book, and we have them for sale outside the door that I hope you'll take advantage of. And she'll be staying here afterwards to sign copies for anybody who wants her to sign. But uh, please welcome Trish Hall. And interestingly enough, Trish grew up in Dallas, Pennsylvania, <laughs> and had never been to Dallas, Texas until she arrived last night. So this is her uh, first time here. Dallas, the- Pennsylvania was the first Dallas. There you go. It's a bit smaller. It has one stoplight. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we think of lawyer writing as, as being professional. It's obviously supposed to be nonfiction, not not fiction. And when we think of professional writing, Trish, we know that uh, we aspire to have tight, persuasive writing. But you say, yeah, it needs to be tight, but that doesn't mean it needs to be dull. So let's kind of explore both sides of that perspective. Uh, For you, how do you define what constitutes tight writing? Well, when I was in op-ed, we would get hundreds of submissions a week, and a lot of them were from really smart people, and a lot of them had written books. But when it came to trying to put something in 800 words that was going to 
persuade the audience of their point of view, it's tough. Sometimes the more you know, the harder it is to do that. So they often would not get to their point until halfway through the piece. Um, there's a kind of desire to show how smart you are and how much you know and how thoroughly you understand the subject. And weirdly, that can get in the way. Sometimes when you're writing, you just need to focus on a single point and make it really strong. So I think, oddly enough, it's not the most educated people who have the most trouble writing sort of tight to the point pieces. And I think that's really important for those of us in the litigation business, when you open particularly, let's say an appellate brief or even a motion for summary judgment, uh, obviously you've got to recite the facts of the case to introduce uh, the judge, but uh, to get that point up to the front, what, what's your suggestion to, to lawyers about how important it is not to bury your lead? I mean, for every lawyer, obviously your audience is different. If you're writing for a judge, it's different than if you're writing a complaint letter to a landlord. But I think in almost any case, you need to come to the point quickly and you need to make things you make you've talked a lot about how do you make writing vivid I think if you tell stories I know a lot of lawyers and you have the best stories in the world everything that's interesting seems to end up going through a lawyer um, and so using those stories in your writing and not making it dry um, makes an enormous difference in you know your the feelings of your audience. And even if your audience is just one person, that that person wants to be compelled to read your writing. They don't want it to feel like a punishment. What are the characteristics of, of vivid writing? That, that You mentioned you read thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of submissions. What were the things, the characteristics that stand out for you to make writing really jump off the page and, and grab the reader? I mean, a lot of it would be starting right out with something that was counterintuitive or surprising. That might not relate to what you all do, but um, if I would get a lot of things that we we ran were just sent in by people we didn't know. They just came to what we called slush. And one of them was, um, uh, the first sentence was something like, um, I used to be a money addict. And then the guy talked about working in investment banking and how much, no matter how much money he made, it wasn't enough. Um, something that is surprising, because I'm like, hmm, it sounds pretty good to me. Um, so something that's surprising that is not what people expect is always going to draw their attention. Mm -hmm. Now, to get to the final product between the first draft and the final product, uh, you say uh, requires relentless editing. You spent many years of your career as uh, an editor. Talk about that process as you go through draft after draft. What is that process that refines uh, a rough draft into a final? What's, what's the thing you're looking for with that relentless editing? I mean, I think you're always thinking about who your audience is and what their needs are and what they want to read um, and what will keep them going. But in order to do that, I think it really helps to show your writing to someone, whether it's the person sitting next to you or a friend who's not in your office. 
having somebody read it who's not involved with it is enormously helpful. And walking away from it yourself, like I always let things be for a while, even though I tend to procrastinate and write on deadline. I like to put in some time so that I can walk away from it. Because when you go back, you often see places where it's too wordy or you could have used a better word. I actually, I had a lot of examples in my book of sort of messed up writing and and then an edit of it. And then when the lawyer, thank you lawyers, went over my book, she said, you can't use any of this. These are not public. Um, Some of them were just from press releases. Some of them were from websites. But then it turned out that the one thing that was not protected by any kind of copyright was federal information. And so weirdly, I should have found it before that, but I stumbled on this great federal website, which I actually have to read something from. Um, It's the plain language movement in government. And they have all these great examples of before and after. And a lot of them, it's the kind of language that lawyers use. Um, I think lawyers are often locked in by templates and the history of legal language. And that's why they use so many excess words that aren't really needed because it's just like the custom. Um, It's hard to get away from custom, but it's possible. So this one, I have to read you this. I'm sorry. I love it. The amount of expenses reimbursed to a claimant under this subpart shall be reduced by any amount that the claimant receives from a collateral source in connection with the same act of international terrorism. In cases in which a claimant receives reimbursement under this subpart for expenses that also will or may be reimbursed from another source, the claimant shall subrogate the United States to the claim for payment from the collateral source up to the amount for which the claimant was reimbursed under this subpart. Like, no normal person is going to have any idea what that means. Most lawyers have no idea what that means. (laughs) I mean, we all get things in the mail that we don't understand at all, like... We just do from, and we see things online that we don't understand. When you agree to terms and conditions, does everybody here just check the little box? Does anybody actually read them? I mean, if you read, if you read them, you can't understand them. So the, this government plain language site turned that into less than half the size. If you get a payment from a collateral source, we will reduce our payment by the amount you get. If you get payments from us and from a collateral source from the same expenses, you must pay us back the amount we paid you. So it's all active instead of passive, and there aren't a lot of qualifiers, and it makes actually perfect sense. So I think that that's it's possible to write like that if you walk away from it, look at it again, and think, you know, would my mother understand this? Would my brother understand this? Like, you're dealing with real people, not with machines, and if they would have trouble understanding it, it's probably too complicated. I mean, a suggestion as I uh, listen to you talk about that great thought, too many lawyers wait until the deadline to write the final draft of their pleadings or briefs or whatever it is. If you calendar the day before is the deadline and you have 24 hours to share it with a law partner, or a spouse, or somebody to get that feedback, to get rid of your blind spots, perhaps to correct your fact errors. If uh, talk about, let's talk about uh, the importance of accuracy in in writing 
to persuade. Um, well, I mean, as you can imagine at the New York Times, um, everybody hates you, everybody on the right, everybody on the left, even the middle. Um, everyone's always looking for errors. They're always putting them on Twitter. You are just a target all the time. And so even though the Times, like other places, makes errors, everyone's very conscious that they will be attacked. And if, if anything in your piece is wrong, then it makes people not believe the rest of it. Um, and it can be little typographical, little grammar things. Like, I see that a lot in just in the world. Like, I know it's weird, but, you know, if an advertisement or if anything has erroneous word usage, I think, eh, I don't know. So, I mean, I'm sure you all know that. If, if you don't make it right and someone in your audience knows it's wrong, they'll discredit everything that you're saying. Right. And so when you cite a very well-known case and totally mischaracterize it and the judge, because he's dealt with that case so many times, you're just losing credibility by mischaracterizing that. Uh, something you touched on earlier, but I think that lawyers need to be mindful of and, and, and talk about, uh, before I ask that question, the research that went into your book in terms of the psychology of persuading. What did you learn from that research that maybe you really hadn't zeroed in on before about what the studies have shown about the most effective ways of persuading? I mean, I think because I was always a journalist and a fairly apolitical journalist, um, and because journalists are supposed to be nonpartisan, um, and I like stories and I like facts and I like graphs and charts, um, I always thought facts change people's minds. And um, it was interesting doing the research for this book. There's just study after study that facts certainly can contribute to change. I mean, certainly so many people in this country stopped smoking because of the Surgeon General's report in 64. But it took a long time. They really stopped smoking because their friends and neighbors did. And then their buildings started disallowing smoking. Their cultural changes that happen over time, and they happen because there's an emotional or cultural or sort of a, a group move in that direction. So really what has the most effect on persuasion and changing people's minds, and this is not in the, you know, talking about a judge, but just in general with the research, is that people are very loath to change their opinions. They take in the information that supports their point of view, and they are most likely to change their opinions if their friends and relatives and their social group changes an opinion. So the best, one of the best ways to really reach someone is to show what you have in common and to sort of create some kind of personal bond. And then when you do that, it's much easier to talk about some issue that you might disagree on and make some progress toward persuading that person. As you're saying that, I'm, I'm thinking of the novels of, of John Grisham. Uh, many of you are aware of the West Virginia coal company case where the coal company lost a, a monster verdict uh, at the trial court level. And then uh, the losing company went out and basically bought the West Virginia Supreme Court 
to get a majority. And lo and behold, the trial court result was uh, changed. And so John, who's famous for reading stories in the news and tweaking them and turning them into novels, said his in Mississippi. But it was based on, on the same uh, premise. And that book was, uh, by all accounts, uh, very instrumental in many legislatures rethinking uh, elective judges and the amount of campaign donations can come from from any one source, uh, that type of thing. So stories... Uh, so money's persuasive. Yeah. <laughs> well, there is actually, this is like a much smaller level than that, but... Um, I would always wonder why when I was at the Wall Street Journal and the Times, people would always be sending us presents and flowers and food. And I'd be like, eh, I can't take any of this stuff. What makes them think I can take this? But there is all this research showing that any time you do someone a favor or give them a gift, they feel compelled to reciprocate. It's sort of like, yes, we all have these evil sides, but there is this fundamental evolutionary side where our impulse is to be helpful and if someone helps you, your impulse is to help them. So the gift, maybe you don't have enough money to buy judges, mm -hmm. and you probably can't give them gifts, but gifts are apparently very effective. Oh, in Texas, they're very effective, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, in talking about trying to persuade somebody, it's obviously very important to know your audience. Of course, in the litigation, when you're in front of a judge who's probably ruled on similar cases, as yours, same with the Court of Appeals. So you talk about the importance of knowing your audience bias and then working from there. So, so talk about that process of how to address the bias in kind of a tactful sort of way, but then use your knowledge of that to try to get that person to come around to your perspective. Um, well, I also saw that in action in op-ed a lot because Everybody who wrote for the Times understood that it was a basically liberal audience. And the liberal columnists, you know, it's kind of easier for them. They're sort of writing to their people. And the comments are very supportive. It's just like that's what people expect from the Times. And because of that, we were always looking for conservative columnists because you want to challenge your readers, not just, like, make them happy. And... Um, one of my favorite columnists was um, a regular, but not on staff. He had a, he had a day job, um, Arthur Brooks. And Arthur knew how to write to a liberal audience because he knew how to shape his pieces so that he would affirm in some way what they all had in common with him. And one piece in particular um, that impressed me was about the lack of political diversity um, among academic faculty and social science departments. And they were overwhelmingly liberal Democrats. And he's like, what are the odds of that? And he, so he felt like there was discrimination against conservatives in hiring. But instead of, he didn't just start out that way because you know what? People probably wouldn't have moved along with him. He sort of teased them into it with, it's about knowing the values of your audience. And he understood that one value of liberals is diversity. So he started out by talking about how important diversity was and how it makes everything better when you have many voices. And then he started talking about the lack of diversity in that faculty. And by the time you got to that part, you 
were under, you were aware of the contradiction between your professed values and what was probably happening on those campuses. And he did it in many of his pieces, and I thought it was unusual because it's hard to write for an audience that you know has a completely different perspective. Um, but if you do know their perspective and you know it's different, you really have to start out by respecting that perspective and thinking about how the world looks to that person or that audience. And if you know that, and you can think about what they value, like one of the interesting things in doing the research was all these studies they would do on the importance of values. And we don't usually all walk around thinking about our values, but they are there and they're driving us all the time. So one of the studies they did was sort of, and none of us are very good at this. Mostly when we're arguing with people, we're just totally going from our own values and we're not thinking about the other person at all. But they had a test where they gave different people. So they had liberals, they had conservatives. And to the liberals, if you wanted, if a conservative wanted to convince a liberal that it was very important to spend on the military, they would probably say a military, military keeps the country strong but was much more likely to persuade the, Democrat, the liberal was to say, the military is a way out of, of, it's a way to progress in society, it's a way to get a better job, it's a way to move up, so that it was appealing to that person's faith and desire for social mobility. So that's what I mean by understanding their values. You can craft your argument their similar research was on global warming and climate change, that if you wanted to bring a conservative over to your side, you might get farther by talking about the sort of sanctity of the earth and the purity of the earth, because there are certain conservative values that that spoke to. And I just found that research fascinating because I don't think any of us are aware enough of how we couch all of our arguments from our own values and our own perspectives rather than thinking about who we're talking to. Yeah, so not only think about who's in your audience, but what are their values and use that as a starting point to show that I get it, we're on the same page, but here's something new to think about. Here's one of my favorite sentences in your book. Think about this litigator's quote. Persuading someone often means suggesting something in a way that's not an order, but almost an invisible suggestion, because lecturing and hectoring creates resistance, not compliance. So that's easy to say, but hard for lawyers to do, suggesting, not lecturing, soft, but not hard. So what's the best way to dial back one's attitude and tone to where you're suggesting and not lecturing? Well, I mean, we all had parents and we all knew that when they would tell us what to do, we weren't going to do it. So it's interesting, like some of, there, there are these researchers in England, the Allisons, and they're psychologists, and they reviewed hundreds of hours of tapes from interrogators questioning terrorism suspects. And when interrogators would go in and be really aggressive, they wouldn't get anywhere. But when they would go in and just sort of say, I wanna hear your story, I really just wanna hear your story and know what you're thinking, 
they would get a response. So having empathy, knowing where the other person is coming from will allow you, I mean, I guess we should think of something specific. I don't know what might apply in a legal, and are you talking about like a negotiation and like a divorce? Like what might be an example? Of uh, thinking about the other side? Yeah. Well, I think a divorce is a very good example. Uh, I know a lot of people have gotten divorced. Put, put yourself in, in the other person's shoes, see the picture through their eyes. And uh, I think one I of mean, the- I had a friend whose divorce was going on forever and it was just torture. And, and you know, there's always that question, well, are the lawyers making it? What is making it go on? And I'm like, well, at the bottom of it, there's always emotional stuff. But in that case, I thought it was just that the person he was getting divorced from hadn't worked in 15 years and was afraid to. And like, if you understand that fear in that case and can try to figure out how to do something about it, um, then you're more likely to get somewhere. But that may, you know, that might've just been that case. But I think failing to know what the other person is thinking accounts for a lot of sort of pointless arguing. Well, I I think what you just said leads me, almost everybody in this room uh, from time to time gets involved in a mediation. And to me, one of the, the best things about a mediation is over the course of that day, Maybe for the first time, you're beginning to understand what's important to the other side, uh, what caused this dispute to arise in the first place, what the other side really is looking for in the way of resolution. And until you stop and, and think about that and say, okay, let me put myself in that position, what would I want? What would be, quote, fair? So I think, I think it, it lends itself in the, in the mediation process in particular uh, to that perspective. Now, now you mentioned uh, early in the presentation the use of charts and graphs. I suspect everybody in this audience, whether you're making a presentation to a jury or to a client or at a conference or business development presentation, you charts and graphs are valuable. Talk about, again, from the, the psychology research, what's the right amount of usage without overdoing it but without underdoing it either? I mean, it's interesting because I've always really liked charts, but I didn't know why. And there are studies that show that people like them because, you know, people have very little respect for a lot of institutions in society right now, but they seem to respect science. And so a chart seems scientific. And I think if you have so many charts that they're overwhelming, then that's a different issue. But when they would give people information... And then they take the same information and have some of it in words and some of it in the chart. That was more effective in persuading people. And I think some of it's probably respect for the idea of science, that it's somewhat objective. But I think some of it is also, if you're a visual person, um, which I tend to be, which is maybe not that great for a word person, I love charts because they, if they're done well, I understand the information immediately. I like looking at them. I like looking at the little bars going up and down. There's just something about them that's a break from the words. And so, yeah, I don't know. When I was at the Times, they loved graphics, and I think a lot of them were too complicated. I think when people go wrong with this is when they try to get too much information in one chart. It's like putting too many words in a sentence. But if it's kept simple, the vividness of... You know, like just take a stock market chart. If you're 
sentence upon sentence would tell you where the stock market's been going and you can say it all in one chart. Mm -hmm. What you just said reminds me, I suspect everybody in this room makes PowerPoint presentations and I hope many of you have uh, gone to uh, seminars on best practices in PowerPoint. I was at a gathering last week of a major bank who was trying to market all the many wonderful things it did and they used a PowerPoint and on most of the slides, there were like 300 words that were this small and nobody in the room could possibly read them. And uh, one of the things that I learned that's tied into what you just said is, when you're using PowerPoint, photographs are great. Charts are great. Words ain't so great. Uh, well, and also when you do that, you find that people are reading those words and not listening. It's very distracting. It's complicated because you want to enhance what people are getting, not compete with it. Now, another aspect of the uh, research you did on the persuasion that I think may uh, uh, cause some lawyers to, to rethink the, uh, something, it says, you say, for a writer to be persuasive, it helps to be positive slash optimistic. That way you can be more inspirational. Uh, Talk about that in the uh, in the context of uh, op-eds. Uh, I mean, obviously, you've got a lot of people who are motivated by they're unhappy with something, and that's what inspired them to write. Of course, we as lawyers, if we lost at the trial court, we're, we're unhappy with the result. But, but talk about tweaking that in a way that doesn't sound like you're whining, but sounds more optimistic and thus inspirational. I mean, I think it's comp the psychology of it's complicated, and I interviewed some psychologists for the book, and I was like constantly confused by the sort of there's a lot of anger in the world, and anger anger can be mobilizing. It can make you do positive things. Actually, it can get you moving, um, and a lot of people write in an angry way, and it may not persuade people elsewhere, but it may just motivate the people that. They, that they already agree with. Um, but it does, there is a, this sort of countervailing reality that people want to feel good and they want to be optimistic and they want to hear that everything's going to be okay. So your motivation for writing about something can be anger and you can talk about what's wrong with something, but people want solutions. They don't want to be just left sort of hanging with that anger. There's a kind of... Um, so even if you're writing an op-ed where you just think this is a disaster and this is a disaster, you want to say, but this is how we can fix it. And I know we can, and this is why, because it's depressing to just wallow in that anger, especially if it's not an anger you share. Getting back to one of the points we talked about earlier, and that is the importance of, of, of telling a story to tie into uh, someone's emotion, uh, sometimes people get so wrapped up in the story that, that it consumes the piece and you don't develop the point. So, so give us your perspective on kind of the proper length of a story when it's being used to set up an argument. I mean, it depends on how long your piece is or your brief or what you're writing, but I would say in the sort of typical 800-word op-ed, you know, story would maybe be a quarter of it, you know, you'd have someone's story and that would sort of pull you into the piece and then you'd sort of pull out and go to the larger issues. 
and then you'd go to your conclusion. Maybe it'd be a third of the piece. I mean, it varies from piece to piece, but I think story is what pulls you in. Sometimes you don't want it to be the first sentence, but it's what makes something engaging and sort of specific and real. And the, and the real masterpieces to me are where they, excuse me, start off with a story, hit the point, and then tie it all together at the right. end in climax, tying back into that original story. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that shows a certain mastery. Yeah, no, I think that's right, because you're not using that story just to, like, use it. It can't be just this weird emotional, like, blackmail at the beginning of it. It's got to be making the larger point in a real way. Mm-hmm. So it, it does tie back. It's Trish. Go ahead, so you won't get mobbed. Go out that door and to the left. That's where the books are. I'm not afraid of getting mobbed, but okay. I want you mobbed at the table where they're selling books. All right, thank you. Uh, so anyway, Trish is going to go back there. If you've got children, grandchildren who are students uh, or people in your workplace who perhaps work with you or under you who you think aren't near as good a writers as they need to be, I really encourage you. This book is the right length. It won't knock you down, but you've heard it's full of the psychology that people need to be thinking about uh, when, when you're trying to make a persuasive pitch. And uh, I think for its size and, and its, you know, being right on point for the way we're operating in 2019, it's, it's just a marvelous uh, piece of writing. So let's give Trish a round of applause and she'll be right out there. Trish Hall has the rare combination of keen insight, genuine humility, and a highly engaging, calm personality. Here's hoping Trish's important thoughts on best practices in writing persuasively will be helpful to you. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Make sure you catch all my podcasts on Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, remember the words of my great dear friend Bobby Bregan, you can't hit the ball with the bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford Bowen McKinley and Norton. Thanks for listening.